0: Welcome to Tax Break, a podcast on the tax law brought to you by Miller & Chevalier. I'm Steve Dixon, a tax litigator with Miller & Chevalier. I'm joined, as always, by my colleague, international tax and tax policy expert, Lauren Pons. And today we have another colleague joining us, uh, tax planner and corporate tax expert, Andy Howlett. He's here today to talk to us about Section 199A, its purpose, and the upshot of the latest reg package under that section. As always, the idea behind Tax Break is to provide listeners with some perspective on select tax issues that we think are interesting. We wanna go deeper than what's in the tax press, but stay sufficiently high level so our listeners can follow along without a copy of the regs or in this case, the excruciatingly detailed regs uh, in front of them. As always, first, a disclaimer. Tax Break is not intended to be legal advice, and you cannot rely on it as legal advice. Its content reflects only the thoughts and opinions of its hosts or guests. So welcome to the podcast, Andy.
1: Yeah, thank you for having me. Um, And uh, I I apologize for, for those who are um, watching the video version of this podcast that, that I'm having some technical difficulties. So I um, you, you're you only hearing the audio. It's uh, a little bit frozen. So I, I do well, apologize for that. I, I,
0: I also apologize to anyone who's watching the video version <laughs> of the podcast. But <laughs> that's and only that because you have frozen. to watch me speak.
1: <laughs> now, what, what's weird about this is I can actually see your video and you have the code sort of tastefully... Um, set up behind you so there's, there's uh, what one of my favorite Twitter accounts is like room raider and, and all it does is it kind of rates you know people's zoom backgrounds. so I think yours is um, really very scholarly yeah, thank you I also, no have, I, also
0: I also put infinite jest right here so you can see that
1: oh look at look at okay, Lauren's disgust with that I've that's one of my favorite before. books that I own that I've pretended to read so that's great I, yeah. <laughs> it's been a while
2: Pretended
1: to read. I like that, Andy. I like that. Yeah, I, <laughs> I'll do a, I, I don't,
0: We'll do a, I, another David Foster Wallace podcast at another point. I, don't
2: <laughs> have idea. I won't be on that one. But
0: you... <laughs> so, so Andy, we so we have a new Section 199A as of TCJA has nothing to do with our old Section 199 domestic manufacturing deduction. Um, so, if you could start just by telling our listeners a little bit about what section the new section one ninety nine a is and and why Congress put it into place
1: sure and and let me um and i i will be interested for lauren's take on this but but let me uh push back a little bit that it has nothing to do with one ninety nine a or Fair. only one ninety nine excuse me because <laughs> i i think You will find in some of the choices that they they made, um, you know, going back to old 199, which was repealed uh, simultaneously by the TCJA, you know, when 199A came in. But you know, big picture, so you talk about business tax reform, um, you know, in the TCJA in the years leading up to it, and probably the single biggest issue was that the corporate tax rate was too high, and you could you know, I, I, am no expert on the politics of anything, but my understanding is that you could find pretty broad agreement that the 35% corporate rate, which was among the highest in the developed world was too high. Different people had different views about how low it should get. And, and that was a big part of the, you know, the process of the TCJA back in the, those carefree days of 2017. Well, they eventually settled, um, you know, they settled on 21%. And that's that's the corporate rate now. Um, and so, you know, you you, you hear that and, and everybody says, okay, great. And then the other thing that the TCJA did is it cut, you know, well, it did a lot of things, but one other thing that it did is it cut the kind of individual tax brackets. Uh, you know, our highest rate went from 39.6 for individuals to 37%. And there were, you know, their corresponding cuts, which were actually, um you know, fairly significant. Well, the, um, you know, the genesis behind 199A is people saying, okay, you're gonna cut business taxes. You're doing this big, um, you know, cut from 35 to 21%, but a huge number of businesses in the United States um, are operated through pass-through entities. And by pass-through entities, I mean, um, primarily S corporations and partnerships. Uh, trusts are a little bit of a, a special case, um, and and in some cases they operate as as pass-through entities as well. But what I really mean is is S corporations and partnerships, and 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 you know the the owners of those businesses said, wait a second, you know you can't cut corporate the corporate rate so significantly from thirty five to twenty percent, and then. Not cut the rate for pass-through businesses uh, because if you do that, you're putting you know the pass-through structure at a disadvantage um, you know compared to where it was under previous law and and everything I just said, you know some people I think could could fairly take issue with but that was essentially the rationale and so one ninety nine a what it does in its final form is it provides a twenty percent uh, deduction equal to certain types of pass-through income, which I'll come to in a second. But if you have, um, if you have, you know, $100 of we call it qualifying business income (QBI), um, and you know it meets these kind of guardrails and things you have to jump through, then you get a $20 deduction on your your tax return for that $100 of income. So it's as if you only earned eighty dollars of income. Um, now, really quickly, and then I'll, you know, shut up for a second. But, but what are the guardrails? Well, well, here are the main ones: has to be U.S. source, has to be a domestic trader business. Um, it's only for for most, for for taxpayers who have incomes above, and I'm using the married filing jointly rates, four hundred and fifteen thousand dollars. Only income that is in certain businesses uh, is eligible for the tax uh, pass through and, and or for the deduction, excuse me. And in the statute, it's uh, you know it's defined by exclusion. It's any business other than you know these lists of uh, businesses that that don't qualify, which includes uh, accounting, medicine, uh, to my great chagrin, law, um, consulting, and a, a few more and than then any business in which the principal asset of such business is the reputation or skill of one or more of its employees. Um, so that, that's the first big guardrail. And then the second big guardrail is this kind of, we call it the W-2 wage adjusted basis limitation. And, and basically what it is, is that your deduction will be limited Um, If you don't have either enough wages in this business that, you know, reach a certain percentage of the deduction or, um, and this was, you know, kind of a result of of, uh, some lobbying by, I think, primarily the real estate business, but you have certain um, investments in qualifying property. Um, And, you know, they look to, you know, what your basis was in the property when you originally acquired it, you know, not taking into account depreciation. So and that again doesn't doesn't kick in. Uh, it starts kicking in at 315,000, and then it it's fully that restriction is fully phased in at at 415,000. So that is 199A in a nutshell.
2: In a nutshell. So let's go back to can we go back to some of the policy behind 199 sure. CAFE? Um, Andy, I think you're you're definitely right. The 35% corporate tax rate was probably universally viewed as too high um, and Principally, the argument was that it just made U.S. Uh, multinationals not as competitive as they possibly could be. So, uh, we have the highest, I believe the highest tax rate of all of the OECD countries, corporate tax rate. Um, so, with that understanding that the corporate tax rate was going to fall, you had a huge disparity. For pass-throughs, people are taxed at their individual bracket rates, so... You own an LLC, or you're a partner in a partnership, um, or a shareholder in an S Corp, you're going to be taxed at your individual rate. And even though individual rates were reduced, um, you still had a pretty big disparity between the 21% corporate rate that we ultimately ended up with and say, you know, if you're in the 37% bracket or any other bracket below that, you had to be. Um, Pretty pretty low on the on the scale to equalize the corporate um, and individual rates. So that was the thinking behind 199 cap A. Um, but you also have to consider, and I don't know the exact numbers, but the majority of um, I think a fair amount of um, small businesses are run through pass through um, structures, and so you have
1: yeah the vast pressure. majority I think yeah
2: you have you have pressure on ultimately what becomes individuals. Um, And then the other big thrust of of tax reform in general was to relieve some of the tax burden that was on individuals. And a lot of the um, modifications to the code were meant to uh, reduce the tax burden of individuals. So you had to make some modifications to the pass-through rules, because if you say, all right, well, the rates are going to be lowered and you're only contemplating people who are W two taxpayers, don't run their own businesses, are employed by someone else. You're you're ignoring a large swath of the population, um, and so you had to equalize those rates. And wouldn't it yeah?
1: Be,
0: I, I, go ahead. Wouldn't it be fair? I mean, and, and obviously, if you were advocating for Section one ninety nine a, you would not put it this way. But wouldn't it? Technically, be fair that what one ninety nine a wasn't it wasn 't aiming so much at parity as it was at preserving the inherent tax advantages of operating through a pass through because even even with the rate in corporate the reduction in the corporate rate you 're still facing a double layer of tax <laughs> at yeah. the corporate level, and so there's a sense in which it's it's not equalizing the treatment, it's sort of maintaining the order of the universe as it had been.
1: <laughs> yeah, and, and there are I I think that's that's well put, Steve. And and, and there are, you know, the, the, there is a reasonable question that, that's kind of lurking behind here. It's like, well if the tax rate is so much lower that for pass throughs, then why isn't uh, McDonald's or what, what's the company that's doing well these days, Netflix? Why isn't Netflix organized as a pass-through? they're organized as a a C corporation. Um, And the answer to that is like, well, there are a lot of drawbacks to operating through a pass-through as well, Um, you know, and there are, you know, so there are advantages and drawbacks. You know, one of the drawbacks, S corporations can only have certain types of shareholders and they can't have more than a a hundred of them. Uh, Partnerships generally uh, cannot be publicly traded now there are there is an exception for partnerships with certain types of income um, but you know all, all of these things and and you know potentially your accounting rules are are different uh if you're you're a corporation uh you know generally speaking it's easier for c corporations to raise uh capital um, stuff like that so you know it it i think that's exactly right what you said is that it 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 is it was meant to preserve, um, not not to ensure fairness, but to preserve kind of the relative advantages and disadvantages that uh, existed prior to the TCJA, and you know, kind of indeed has been around for you know at, at least a hundred years as as we've had the federal income tax code.
2: Right. Or put another way, it wouldn't. It would kind of take. Tax rates out of the equation for determining what entity you wanted to operate as. As you noted, there are benefits and drawbacks to both pass-throughs and corporate formation. So, you know, you don't want one of the, the stark differences to be the rate at which you're, at which you're taxed.
1: Right.
0: So Andy, I started out by you. You started out with by disagreeing with me, which is the best way to have a podcast: (laughs) disagreements. But you disagreed with, yeah, you disagreed with my proposition that this had nothing to do with the old domestic manufacturing deduction. And then you enumerated some of the some of the the boundaries of what is in what kinds of pass throughs are included or excluded from one ninety nine a. And it seems to me there's there is a fundamental sort of similarity there, you mentioned that they have to have effectively sort of an operating business where they're paying W-2 wages, they have to be located domestically. Is that a good way to f- sort of frame the the nature of what what kinds of pass-throughs are included in 199A versus those that are getting excluded?
1: Yeah, I, I, I um, you know, it's, it's I'll, I'll start by saying the, the didn't um and this is you know in one level sort of purely a mechanical choice but but they they could have and by they i mean you know congress could have just chosen to label it new 199 since they were getting rid of 199a um anyway and they didn't they were getting rid of old 199 excuse me anyway and they didn't do that um but they did make it you know 199 cap a which suggests some logical tie. The other thing that I'll think uh, I'll mention, and and you know, this is this is just a little you know thing that that if you watch the bill. So when the House bill came out, and, and you know, of course, we have you know, Lauren, who's uh, majority uh, uh, counsel uh, for for the House of Representatives at the time that was writing this bill. But the the approach was a little bit different, in which they they proposed to tax qualifying pass through income at favorable rates. Um, which just, uh, mechan- like, I mean, you get to the same result mechanically. And, you know, as a then, you know, um, associate trying to figure this out at like midnight, um, it, was a little, it was a little confusing. So the Senate bill came out, and they came out with a deduction. <laughs> and, it, and in the Senate draft, the, the um, kind of original version of the bill excluded um, architects and engineers from getting the benefit. And, and this is something that's interesting because um, the, the guardrail references another provision in the code, section 1202, um, which excludes architects and engineers from getting the benefit. And um, But one thing that was significant is that architects and engineers could get the benefit under 199. That is, they were eligible for the old 199 uh domestic production activities deduction and so um you know when the bill uh went to conference um architects and engineers were put back in um which is you know if you wanted to make a draw back to kind of old 199 um you know i think that's a a fairly convincing point and you know i have no idea uh you know i don't know what anyone said to anyone but you know it does um you know, if I'm, I'm an architect or an engineering firm, it you know it would be a tough pill to swallow to get um, 199 taken away, and then not you know to be not eligible for 199A. And now again, and then I, I just want to caution, as I always do, this is only once you exceed that 415,000 dollar threshold. Um, so there are uh, the the short answer, I guess, is there are some connections, and and you can systematically sort of follow the thread, but it is really very different uh, from, from the old domestic production activities production.
0: So could you talk, so this is a big project in terms of not only what the statute does, but what, what the regulations need to do, which is to essentially separate out the kinds of pass-throughs that are corporate-like enough, to get this effectively this deduction that that equates to a kind of a rate parity with corporations um, from those that are i would say you know passive or uh that don't have sort of the kinds of active operations that deserve that so that's a that 's an enormous statutory and regulatory project so can you tell us a little bit about how to think that through and and Perhaps that, that segues into uh, into the latest Reg package under under 199A.
1: Yeah. Um, so so at a very high level, um, and, and and you know I I certainly talked to, to some people at Treasury about this, and you know of course I've, I've read um, you know everything that they put out um, you know as they were going through this rulemaking process at a very high level, the concern was to prevent what was viewed as abuse. Um, And uh, let me give you an example of something that that would be viewed as abusive. And this this is actually an example in um, the first bout of proposed treasury regulations. Um, A lot of law firms uh, are organized as um, partnerships and um, they hire, uh, associates as employees of the law firm who are not partners and they you know the the um the associates do their work and and they get paid a salary and and you know bonus if times are good and and so on and so on and every everything's happy well you know those those associates are employees being in the trader business of, of being an employee is not uh qualifying trader business under 199a that's very clear in the statute so, you know, okay, well, well, hang on here. What if all the associates got together and instead of, um, you know, doing a, uh, being employed to the law firm, they started their own LLC that's taxed as a partnership called Associates LLC. And the law firm went and hired this LLC to provide associate services. Um, you know, is it possible? And, and they're all going to be below uh, the threshold. Um, for you know when it 's qualified uh, you know we're say they 're below the well below four hundred and fifteen thousand on an individual basis, so you know can can these associates now claim you know the pass through deduction because it goes through associates lLC and then you know the, the associates in the law firm would would split the difference somehow well no i mean that's that's that 's abusive that 's not you know that that 's not what the statute was was intending to do um, it, it wasn 't um you know, wasn't tending to, to compensate people who were um, in substance employees and not owners in the pass through business. Um, so that's just one example. So th- so their main goal is to prevent abuse while allowing the businesses, and I'm paraphrasing the, the first proposed regs, but allowing the owners of the businesses that Congress had intended to benefit from this provision to actually benefit. Um, and so as, as a result, um, they made kind of a number of choices around the edges, you know, about um, kind of what counts uh, for for guardrails. You know, I, I I mentioned that you know one thing that was a, a big deal is this this um, concept where you have a trader business and the um, principal asset of the trader business is the reputation or skill of one or more of its um, of, of the employees um, and so you know what what does that mean does that mean that like Len the plumber doesn't get, uh I, and I don't know if they're a seats corporation or not but 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 does that mean that like Len the plumber doesn't get it because you know everybody's getting them on the lot, getting them on the phone and, and hoping to get Len to come to their house and and the regs say no 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 that's that's not what you meant we meant Len the plumber is fine we met somebody who's like a, a country music star and you know it, it it's like if it, it, taylor swift were organized as i don't know if she's country or not at this point but my you know, she my, my
0: my 14 year old would tell you she is not but she is not
1: well taylor <laughs> swift is not able to get uh the 199a deduction right, right, right. um so um, so andy that makes sense that
0: Congress would want to distinguish sort of individual – they would want to prevent individuals who are effectively doing the business that they've always done from benefiting from this new 199A when they're not organized in any kind of sort of collective business enterprise. What are some of the other judgments that, that Congress or, frankly, Treasury made? in deciding who's included or excluded from from this deduction. Yeah,
1: yeah, and let me let me clarify that just yes. just a second. It, it doesn't a, a sole proprietorship, you know, that's in one of these businesses is eligible. So the mere now there're business reasons why you, you don't want to run things that way, but right. um the mere fact that it's like an individual that's running like a, a you know, a real business um it doesn't knock you out of 199a but but what they're trying they're trying to get is individuals who are in substance employees um or you know former employees uh because you know being in the trade or business of being an employee is is you know absolutely out of the statute but right um so so sorry and and then you were asking what are some other areas where um, yes the regs are um well yeah I I think um one of the the kind of more interesting um you know you, you know a, a lot of activity um you you saw around um you know what what so, so there's this concept of a specified service trader business and that is one of those businesses in the areas that i mentioned where it's like law consulting medical services, um, you know, all, all of the businesses that are, are not allowed. Um, and so one area that was, you know, kind of really a problem for, for some people is like, well, I have a business and, you know, really uh, my business does two things. Um, and this, this is just one example from the regs. Um, my business provides vet services, uh, but it also provides pet grooming services, and I have that these businesses kind of under the same, you know, it's got they got the same books um, and and everything, and it's like you know I just put all the revenue in, and and it's you know it's one business and one LLC, and and what am I supposed to do here? Um, and so the regs kind of give you, they don't put it in these words, but they give you two options. So option one is what I call the taint rule. Um, and it basically is, there's, you look at the gross receipts of the two businesses. So you have to, you know, the regs say, like, you got to figure that out, taxpayer. Um, and you say, well, the vet business is, um, you know, like 98% or sorry, the grooming business, let's just say it's 98% of my gross receipts and the vet business is 2%. That doesn't sound very realistic but you know that's that's what says well it says in most cases if it's under five percent in some cases uh, under ten percent of total gross receipts um then you're you're okay um you know your 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 bad vet business won't paint your good dog grooming business um okay well that's not that's not very realistic for you know a lot of people um so what's the other thing that you can do well the other thing that you can do is you can try to make it so that you have two separate trades or businesses. Um, and so how do you do this? Well, one thing that you could do is that you could, and it you know, kind of references other parts of the code for this, um, you could kind of get separate books for everything and keep track of everything different and have different employees, you know, working for one business or the other business within the same entity. And the regs kind of say, well, that would be tricky to do, but like we acknowledge that one entity can conduct multiple businesses. Um, and that would, you know, sort of permit you to do the calculation separately. But the, the kind of better and more foolproof strategy that the regs actually bless is to say, you got to put, you got to put the dog grooming business in a separate entity. Um, and you, you do that um, and you, you generally will be okay. Um, but, and this probably me, brings me to the other example that I wanted to talk about. Um, there are very, remember how earlier I mentioned there are these kind of, um, call it the W-2 wage limit and the qualified property limit. Um, there are very specific rules on how, you know, one business can share um, wages with another business. So let me, let me give a really simple example. I um, Andy Hallett, I have my own architecture firm, and I also have, yes, there's so much that you, you don't want to know about me, and I also have my own dog-ridden service. Um, <laughs> let's say that, um, yes, yes, I, I and, and the architecture firm employs tons of people, it owns a big building, it's a real pillar of the community. The dog grooming service is just kind of me working out of my house, but but still generates a lot of revenue that I want to get this deduction for. So because I have all of these wages from the architecture thing, and I own 100% of both businesses, can I use the wages from the architecture firm to support the deduction that will be coming out of the dog grooming business? And the answer is, under these facts, no. Um, you, you can't. You can only, you, you can do that, um, but only there there are, you know, factors and, and basically you can only do it if the businesses are related uh, somehow. Um, in other words, uh, abuse would be created in this situation because you know, I, I'm saying, well, I have all of these excess wages from my architecture business. Let me go buy another business that, that I would normally have so I can get this tax deduction. Um, and so that's that's the sort of thing that Treasury and the IRS were guarding against and, and kind of their regulatory efforts.
2: Right. And I think both of those examples support the kind of abuse that was contemplated, right? And you mentioned it toward the end there, which is acquiring another business to kind of wash the predominant nature of what you're actually doing. So with the safe harbor example, um, you know, you can't buy you wouldn't buy the vet business because it was it was there's no reason to acquire a business to so only going to contribute, you know, less than five percent of your revenues, right? So it's kind of a lot of people, even while the bill was in process and coming together, there were many ways in which we could imagine that people would kind of try to circumvent the rules, right? And so right. acquiring an eligible business would be one. Um or saying that you really do two things and maybe we can use excess wages over here to contribute to this deduction. It's like, well, those businesses are not related. You've got architecture on one hand, pet grooming on the other. That's not going to work. Um, so Treasury took up the mandate uh, with the anti-abuse provision and, and, and ran with it. And that was, that was a good thing. So, Andy, what what can we
0: expect next under the 199A regs? I, I know we've we've got a big package that just came in, um, but wh- where do where do things go from here?
1: Yeah, great question. Um, so, you know, this this big package, there, there was the kind of first round of regs which were um, proposed, and then um, they they were, I think they moved really quickly. I believe. They were finalized like in July of 2018. I didn't remember I was at the beach. <laughs> um, and then, you know, they at the same time they 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 or shortly after that they proposed um, some additional regs that that kind of um, you know comments noted. Well, these are issues that weren't addressed by the first round of regs at all. Um, would you please address them? And and Treasury, you know, said, okay, here are some proposed regs. They got comments on those, and it was last, um, late last month, uh, the Treasury and IRS um, issued final regs that that had those, um, you know, that, that finalized those proposed regs. Um, there were, uh, you know, kind of still a number of questions there in that package. Um, one of the things that was most interesting to me in my practice was this concept of uh regulated investment companies or RICs. Um and I hope you'll permit me a little bit of latitude to just give you a 30-second kind of overview of that sure. um, issue. But but basically the idea is this a RIC is a uh, essentially, you know, you can think of them like mutual funds or um you know certain exchange traded funds, stuff like that. And the idea is to allow you know, Joe Q investor like me, um, I want to get the benefit of you know the preferable rates on qualified dividends and capital gains that the code allows. But I don't have enough money that it would be prudent for me to go buy you know individual shares of Amazon or Berkshire Hathaway or whatever you know like some blue chip stock. Um, and so what I you know instead I said I'd buy a mutual fund that invests in like 50 of those stocks and and. A regulated uh, investment company just means if, if the company, the mutual fund meets certain requirements, um, it essentially can pass through, you know, the preferential treatment of whatever tax item to meet. And so they're, they're you know, the the, the the phrasing of it that the IRS and Treasury used to talk about them is conduit treatment. Um, you know, so if... if um, my mutual fund uh, sells like 50 shares of Amazon that it owned for five years. And that's long-term capital gain. And then I get, you know, that my gain on the the gain is passed through to me and then I have long-term capital gain. So, so what does this have to do with 199A? Um, 199A says that qualifying income includes um, basically three categories. First, Uh, you know, income directly earned from any, you know, non-specified service trader business. Second, any income that's earned from a publicly traded partnership. And so remember earlier on the podcast, I said, yeah, most public, most partnerships cannot be publicly traded, but a few that have certain sources of income can. And generally those sources of income that are allowed uh, are you know, natural gas, uh, oil, natural natural resources income. Uh, So, for example, I own uh, a limited partnership and a publicly traded partnership called USO. It tracks the price of domestic oil in the United States. Um, So, it's a partnership. I get a K-1 for it. It passes through, you know, income and losses to me. And I, you know, subject to the kind of passive activity rules and some other limitations, I can deduct the losses. I would not recommend it as an investment right now, but I do own it. Um, And then the third category is is real estate investment trusts or REITs. And and those are kind of collective uh, vehicles to invest in real property. So basically these regs said, okay, we are going to give um, if you, since you can own a REIT directly and get the 20% pass through deduction, we're going to give the 20% pass reduction to people who own REITs through uh, RICs, regulated investment companies, mutual funds. I'm just gonna say mutual funds from now on, that's confusing. Um, and so that was in the proposed regs and it was in the final regs too. The question that people raised is, well, what about uh, mutual funds that own publicly traded partnerships, of which there are a lot. Um, mutual funds are allowed to have up to 25% of their holdings, be in publicly traded partnerships, and it's a you know it's a way that uh, people can diversify their exposure to kind of natural resources investments. So what about them? Well, in the proposed regulations, Treasury and the IRS basically said, "Yeah, we're thinking about it. It kind of seems a little complicated to us. You know, please give us some recommendations." And a lot of commenters uh, did, including a number of the you know kind of big bar associations, the ABA Tax Section did. Few others did, and they basically said, "Yeah, if you wanted to do it, it would be a little complicated for the mutual funds. Wouldn't really be that complicated for the people that own mutual funds. But if you want to do it, here's how you do it." And uh, in these final regs, Treasury and the IRS said, "You know what? We've kind of decided that there are sort of too many issues here, and we're we're continuing to think about it. Um, And we welcome additional comments, Um, but we're not going to do it in this package." And so to answer, there's a long way to answer your question of where do we go from here. But that's one issue that's still kind of hanging out there in the open. Uh, Allow me to shamelessly plug that I have an article on our our website, uh, Millerandchevalier.com. If you just search for my name, Andy Hallett, um, you'll see it on this kind of very topic. But, you know, that's an issue that's still out there. Now, and I'm interested in what Lauren thinks legislatively we do have this provision, all of 199A is, is ex- expiring at the end of 2025. So, um, you know, I'm curious, I'm not even, I'm not qualified to prognosticate about what's going to happen with that. Um curious if Lauren has to take.
2: So, you know, there are a lot of built-in expiring provisions in TCJA. which You pointed out this is one, and I do think that um, in a few More years we're going to be faced with should we extend when this is a lot of infrastructure and, and architecture in the code to just watch get wiped away because it expires at the end of 2025. And I don't think the work is going to stop in the meantime, so it's hard for me to imagine 199 Cafe disappearing, um, even though it's set to expire. we will see what happens, but um, it, you know, at that point, people will have. Made significant investments in the rules being the way they are today, um, and so there will be, I think, a huge impetus to keep them. We can all talk about ways to refine the rules, but an overall, you know, repeal of 199 CAFE seems very hard to to contemplate at this point. We'll see. We will see.
0: I mean, and it sounds like sort of maintaining, you know. Th- the hope of 199A to create some kind of uh, parity across entities is going to be an ongoing project because parity is a tricky game.
2: <laughs> it is a tricky game. And I should also note that you know we everybody knows TCJA happened under reconciliation. So a lot of these expiration dates are somewhat, I don't want to say artificial, but they're built in because of um, budget constraints. So right. we'll see how they go.
0: Well, Andy, thanks so much uh, for coming on. You, you, I, I, It's good that you plugged your article. We should also uh, plug your dog grooming slash architecture <laughs> business. Blueprints Thank and paw you. prints, LLC, I think <laughs> is, uh, is what we're gonna call it.
2: Um, That's
1: good, yeah but, but, but don't thanks for coming in, you know up. don't associate that business too much with me because i don't want people to think that its principal asset is my reputation or skill
0: i certainly you you certainly <laughs> don't have a dog grooming reputation to my knowledge so <laughs> <laughs> Great. And thanks, Lauren. Uh, thanks to our listeners. Uh, we uh, welcome any feedback or uh, possible topics. You can email us at podcasts at milchev.com. That's podcasts, plural, at M-I-L-C-H-E-V.com. Thanks.
2: Thank you.